Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to today's Federalist Society virtual event. This afternoon, September 6th, 2022, we're discussing the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, implications for labor law. The topics included in this discussion are the Privileges or Immunities Clause and its associated citizenship declarations, as well as the implications for labor law of the Supreme Court were to view the original meaning of the 14th Amendment in a new light. My name is Jack Apizzi, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we're very fortunate to have an excellent discussion featuring Professor Evan Burnick, Assistant Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University, and Professor Christopher Green, the Professor of Law and Jamie L. Witten Chair in Law and Government at the University of Mississippi School of Law. After our speakers give their opening remarks, we'll turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please just enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle the questions as we can towards the end of the program. Uh, with that, thank you all for being here with us today. And uh, Chris, the floor is yours. Well, thanks. Uh, this is a yeah, great opportunity to uh, to talk about some important issues. Um, of course, the uh, you know fourteen the four huge fourteenth Amendment cases just from last spring, I think, are getting uh, people a lot more interested in the Fourteenth Amendment as it uh, uh, having an impact on what the Supreme Court is up to. Uh, originalism in general has been uh, getting a lot more intentional and just you know scholarship about original meaning. Uh, so just in the last year, uh, there have been uh, I, I don't I'm not sure I want to say three major, uh, but one very, very major collection. It's a two-volume uh, collection by Kurt Lash. Uh, I'll do the, the show and tell. Um, so this, you know, Reconstruction documents the essential. Uh, the Reconstruction amendments the essential documents. Um, really, I mean, it should be on the shelf of every uh, every judge. I think uh, uh, Evan uh, and uh, Randy Barnett uh, uh, published uh, the original meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, the subtitles, you have to turn inside to find the subtitle. It's letter and spirit. Yeah, I, I do that. Uh, and uh, as well, uh, Mormon published a, uh, maybe a pamphlet, uh, but a, a shorter work, uh, the second founding and introduction to the, the 14th Amendment. And uh, has the same, same cover art uh, that you might remember if you're fans of Eric Foner's Reconstruction uh, book from 1988, uh, same, same cover art. So anyway, what do, you know, what do these people think? What do we all think? I, I published a book. Uh, of course, I'm writing another uh, to be published. Uh, who knows when? Uh, several people are, are writing um, books uh, now. Lots of important articles uh, uh, getting written uh, right now. Uh, but what do we all uh, think about the original meaning? Uh, is it just complete chaos that we can't, can't know anything about? Uh, there's a surprising degree of consensus on, um, so I think the proposition that there's a lot of consensus, a lot more consensus on these days, uh, is that the 14th Amendment guarantees free and equal citizenship with respect to the right to work. This was, I think, the core of the core of what Congress was doing in 1866. and. Uh, so even Kurt, so Kurt Lash, uh, you know, long, uh, longtime defender of a view that the privileges of citizens of the United States are just the ones enumerated in the Bill of Rights. Right to work is not enumerated in the Bill of Rights. Even Kurt Lash, his new work on the Citizenship Declaration, the state Citizenship Declaration, argues that citizens uh, of each state have the right to uh, equal labor rights with similarly fellow citizens. And that uh, is the basis for the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866. You know, you'll find in, you know, before a lot of the scholarship uh, came on the scene, a lot of people would say, oh, the basis for the anti-discrimination provisions of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866 is the Equal Protection Clause. But really, there's been a lot more people saying, no, it's not equal uh, rights for all persons necessarily. Uh, it's really an equal citizenship uh, idea, either in the Citizenship Declaration uh, or 
purges or immunities clause. So what do you get when you look at the, the original meaning? Uh, you find uh, that the core of what it means to be a citizen, uh, the, the core that they were concerned with in 1866 and then in the 14th Amendment was the ability to work uh, without being subject to uh, especially racial restrictions, but other kinds of arbitrary restrictions um, that prevent you from entering uh, professions. You know, so the you know the, the, the three of the uh, uh, the black code. So Thirteenth Amendment prohibits slavery. A lot of the Southern states under Andrew Johnson say, "Well, we can't do slavery, but how about this? We can tell all the freedmen uh, that they have to work in agriculture." And a whole bunch of mechanisms for saying uh, you're not allowed to enter. You know. Uh, the kind of provisions, uh, professions traditionally uh, 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 dominated by uh, uh, white folks, uh, you've got to stay in uh, in your place, stay in your place economically. Uh, and the demand freedmen, uh, lots of the freedmen's conventions uh, make very clear they want the right to work in any profession, all the prof professions that any citizen uh, can work in. The South Carolina uh, Freedmen's Convention, I think, is particularly uh, clear on that. Uh, on that score. So if we went to the uh, back to the original meaning of the uh, 14th Amendment, you would have an argument uh, against a lot of distinctions that appear in labor law. So I'm not I'm not a labor law expert at all, but lots of times uh, you'll look at a regulation and you'll say, uh, what's going on here? This doesn't seem like uh the kind of thing that somebody who treated all citizens as free and equal would allow. It seems like it's, you know, to put it crudely, just rent-seeking uh, legislation that's trying to reduce the supply of labor, increase prices, which is in the interest of people who are currently insiders in that industry, but not in the interest of those who are outsiders. So it, a lot of labor law seems to a lot of people like it's uh, kind of helping the people a couple of steps up on the on the economic ladder. Uh, hurting the people at the at the very uh, very bottom, hurting consumers because this reduces uh, 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 production and raises prices for for everybody in the economy, um, and uh, you know so you you might you might wonder is there a good Fourteenth Amendment argument against that when states do it, um, and I think the original meaning does give you the material for at least making that argument. Uh, it doesn't categorically say we have to have anarcho capitalism or anything like that. Uh, but it does uh, raise a question, hey, why are you allowing certain citizens to work certain numbers of hours or uh, uh, work in certain particular uh, uh, places, but not other citizens? Why are you privileging the people a couple of uh, steps up on the economic ladder over those at the very bottom of the economic ladder? Um, if you're going to uh, enforce that, you can't have a rule like Williamson v. Leop. Williamson v. Lee Optical, 1955, says if you have any conceivable basis for running basically just a straight up open cartel, um, uh, that's enough of a rationale. That's not going to cut it uh, if you're applying the original meaning of the uh, of the 14th Amendment. I should say, um, so there's, you know, Evan will talk a little bit uh, uh, more about uh, some 13th Amendment original meaning issues. Uh, there are also, of course, um, huge issues about the original meaning of federal power. In the background. So since 1935, of course, we've had uh, labor law, large, the, the labor union law, labor unions at least, uh, labor law, but also just the regulation of labor has largely been taken over by the federal government. And if you look at the original meaning of the Constitution, um, it, it's pretty clear that there's no, and there are some people who, who dispute this, but there are, it's pretty clear the federal government doesn't have power over labor conditions. Uh, they can't prohibit slavery in the states. They can prohibit slavery in the territories, but Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1, uh, I think, would make no sense if Congress had the power to prohibit slavery uh, in the states. Uh, and that's why, for instance, there's stuff in the Bill of Rights that protects equal labor rights, because the federal government just doesn't have power over that. Um, 
Under the 13th Amendment, Section 2, obviously, Congress gets a huge grant of power uh, to secure uh, labor rights with respect to enforcing the prohibition on slavery. And then 14th Amendment, Section 5, Congress gets uh, a whole bunch more power. But a generic power under the Commerce Power and Necessary Proper Clause um, uh, to, to have labor regulations Seems to me that uh, Carter versus Carter Cole uh, in 1936 and uh, Hammer versus Dagenhart, the, you know, the part about directly regulating uh, uh, labor conditions by the federal government, uh, those seem like they they are they do fit with original meaning. There's no factual development that can really uh, uh, justify departing from from that rule today. Um, uh, Hammer, of course, had some more details about interstate commerce in the products of child labor and, and, and all that. So kind of setting it aside, you know, if you really went for the original meaning of the Constitution, you have a lot of arguments against uh, federal labor regulation. Uh, you'd also, you know, you, you also have a, a question about uh, uh anti-discrimination arguments uh, against the federal government. So in United States versus Vallejo Madero uh, from last spring, uh, Justice uh, Chief, uh, Justice uh, Thomas, I don't want to promote him uh, inadvertently there, uh, but Justice Thomas's concurrence really goes into a lot of the recent scholarship. Cites uh, 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 both of us a bunch of times, so you know it's got to be, it can't be all, all wrong. But he says a bunch of other people too, <laughs> uh, on the idea that, the Citizenship Declaration of the 14th Amendment requires the federal government to treat all citizens as equal. So that, uh, you know, would allow uh, if, if you if you agree with uh, uh, Thomas's reading of the clause and, you know, lots of other people's reading of the clause, it would allow someone to make an anti-discrimination argument or equal citizenship argument. Uh, against federal labor regulation that is very, very similar to the kinds of arguments you'd make in uh, uh, challenging state uh, labor regulations. So with that as kind of kind of background, I haven't really talked much about the differences between all these views, differences between Evan and me and difference between both of us and Kurt Lash and both of us and uh, Elon Werman. I mean, there's just there's a bunch of different nuances. Uh, but I think the core of the core is a ban on hostile and discriminating legislation, including labor regulations, um, is uh, is part of, uh, uh, is, is, I think, the core of the core of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. So, Evan, you can take it away from there. So I think this is probably the first time that Elon Werman's second founding has been referred to as a pamphlet. I don't yeah, think I mean, anybody is going to confuse uh, mine and Randy's book with a pamphlet unless one's experience with pamphlets differs very radically from mine. Uh, I will say of Elon's book that it's a, if it is accurately characterized as a pamphlet, it's an excellent pamphlet and everyone should read it. Um, that being said, when it comes to 14th Amendment scholarship more generally, it is easier to distinguish myself from Elon and uh, Kurt Lash's views about the 14th Amendment than it is to distinguish myself from Chris. In fact, it's very difficult to distinguish myself from Chris. We both share a general at a high level of abstraction view about what rights the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause protects. It protects deeply rooted traditional rights on which there is a broad state consensus for an extended period of time, including rights against discrimination. When it comes to the right to earn a living in the occupation of one's choice, the right to work, Chris and I substantially agree. The right to earn a living is one of the privileges or immunities of U.S. citizenship, deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified. Uh, like other privileges of citizenship, it was understood to be subject to reasonable regulations in the interest of public health, safety, and welfare. But those regulations did need to be reasonable. Uh, they couldn't be arbitrary. They couldn't be designed to extract wealth from some and distribute it to others just because the latter had the political power to dictate that result. So the 14th Amendment, in both of our views, protects economic liberty from state restrictions on it that are either designed to burden some and uh, uh, benefit some and burden others for no reason other than those burden could reasonably be expected to accept. There needs to be a public-oriented justification. However, I depart from Chris in the way of, yes, but when it comes to the breadth 
of the economic liberty that the 13th and the 14th amendments together work to protect, a form of economic liberty that I don't think can be reduced to the right to work. In fact, I think it's very plausible that the 14th Amendment doesn't add any protections for economic liberty to the Constitution, that it provides only a desperately needed, under the circumstances, clarification of what the Constitution properly understood already protected in the estimation of the Republicans who framed and made the case for its ratification. So we think of the 13th Amendment as abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude and so it did. But precisely what slavery and involuntary servitude are is somewhat complicated. It's complicated because of the way the Supreme Court has understood it in ways that were quite different from both how abolitionists and the Republicans who took constitutional inspiration from them understood it. So for abolitionists and Republicans, slavery, involuntary servitude, they were at once peculiar, hyper-exploitive, racialized institutions that operated in the American South, and more generally, a mode of governance that was incompatible with Republican citizenship anywhere that it existed. Specifically, it was a mode of domination through which some were able to dictate the performance and expropriate the fruits of the labor of others. So in this broad understanding of slavery and involuntary servitude, People who are dominated lack power over political life, civil life, in extreme cases, life simply, their continued existence. To be dominated is to be subject in some major area of one's existence to the will of others over whom one lacks control. The peculiar institution, chattel slavery, had an inextricably racial character. The mode of governance did not, had not since the founding, which is why one of the most frequent complaints by American colonists on the eve of the Revolutionary War is that the British are enslaving them through extractive economic policies like the Stamp Act. So as Republican Henry Wilson put it, arguing for the 13th Amendments, quote, we have advocated the rights of the black man because the black man was the most oppressed type of the toiling men of this country. The same influences that go to keep down and crush down the rights of the poor black man bear down and oppress the poor white laboring man. Now, the same influences is admittedly flatly wrong, but the point is that Republicans, Reconstruction Republicans, were committed to a vision of citizenship that required the freedom of all workers from domination. And so this is where things really get, I think, a bit controversial. The 13th and 14th Amendment worked together to secure economic liberty and prevent the exercise of arbitrary power, thereby preventing domination and promoting Republican citizenship. Republican citizenship is characterized by the enjoyment of natural rights and civic equality. Slavery is characterized by domination. The 13th and 14th Amendments together provide the foundation for rights to labor in one's chosen occupation, and also rights to be free from certain forms of labor, whether or not one has contracted to perform them. Both kinds of freedom are necessary to prevent domination, to establish what Republicans understood to be constitutive of citizenship, to be free labor, not merely the right to work. Free labor ideally meant economic independence, which was thought to be necessary to political independence. Among the best pieces of evidence that the 13th Amendment was not understood solely to abolish chattel slavery and thus that the abolition of slavery and involuntary servitude swept more broadly than that peculiar institution is the text of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, just passed by a supermajority of Republicans over President Andrew Johnson's veto. It defines citizenship inclusively, stating that all persons born in the United States are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. It then prohibits race discrimination and property transactions, guarantees to all people the right to sue, be parties, and give evidence. And it guarantees to all people the free and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property as is enjoyed by white citizens. And most importantly, for present purposes, it protects the right to enter and leave contracts to seek, uh, to seek better wages and conditions. That's what it meant for white citizens to have the right to contract. So the 1866 CRA guarantees that right to all citizens. 
And it does so because Southern states had enacted a series of laws known as the Black Codes that, among other things, required formerly enslaved people to sign one-year contracts with their former enslavers, prohibiting leaving their employer and making it a crime to be unemployed. So together, the 13th Amendment and the 1866 CRA are able to provide a floor of labor rights below which no state or private actor could fall. The very next year, the same Congress enacted the 1866 Anti-Peonage Act. The act conveyed authority on the United States to reclaim from peonage women and children being held in that condition in territory adjacent to their homes and on the Navajo Reservation. Now, this was a response to reports that the U.S. Army was directly aiding a system of peonage that exploited Mexicans and American Indians in the New Mexican Territory. And it covered, quote, the voluntary or involuntary service or labor of any persons as PMs in liquidation of any debt or an obligation or otherwise. So in other words, it covered more than chattel slavery. Note voluntary. Congress wanted to protect workers from domination, even if the worker contracted into dominating conditions. And finally, in 1868, the Reconstruction Congress enacted a statute limiting the hours of federal workers to eight hours a day. This is a long-standing demand of an emergent labor movement. Labor spokespeople had argued for decades that the eight-hour work restriction would help to prevent wage slavery, and Republicans echoed this language in calling for it. The notion of a liberty of contract that prevented legislators from recognizing and compensating for power imbalances in the workplace and thereby preventing domination was a much later development. It wouldn't become, you know, the accepted wisdom that the 14th Amendment protected kind of an untrammeled right to contract, after which point the Constitution didn't meaningfully apply until much later. And even during the Lochner era, the court upheld most workplace regulations, including regulations that were intended to specifically protect workers, not third parties. Last point that I'm going to make about this is that 13th Amendment arguments were actually central to major leg uh, labor legislation that was proposed and ultimately enacted in the early 20th century, including New Deal legislation like the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act. Um, however, in the course of litigating it, defending it in court, labor advocates decided to shift to the Commerce Clause. Why? For the same reason that civil rights advocates shifted to the Commerce Clause in defending the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was that the Supreme Court had in a series of cases, unfortunately known as the civil rights cases, held that the 14th Amendments applied only to state action and the 13th Amendments applied basically only to chattel slavery. It's my view that legislation like the National Labor Relations Act can be understood as a means of enforcing the 13th Amendment's protections against workplace domination, just as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 can understood, be understood as implementing the 14th Amendment's protections against racial discrimination. And I'll leave it there. Yeah, so uh, uh, I was saying, saying earlier, Devin, I don't really have a super strong views about the extent to which the 14th Amendment might be just declaratory of the 13th Amendment. Uh, so when Congress is passing the Civil Rights Act of 1866, of course, we don't have a 14th Amendment yet. So there's lots of uh, reason to think if that is... Uh, uh, seen as a use of the 13th Amendment Section 2 power, uh, 13th Amendment, or at least has to be at least a close enough question uh, to be, uh, 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 you, know, you know, the right to, to, to work uh, is protected by the, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Ought to be at least a close question under the 13th Amendment. There were some other bases for the for the Civil Rights Act, uh, Lyman Trumbull, for instance, he repeatedly invoked the uh, citizenship uh, power, the, the naturalization power of Article One, Section Eight, Clause Four. And said, "Well, we can make citizens." So the very first sentence of the Civil Rights Act are the you know say the freedmen are citizens. Okay, and well, if we can make them citizens, if we can eliminate, so the the idea is well, you've got you know uh, enslaved people, you've got. Uh, non-citizens from other countries. Uh, you have these people, denizens, uh, which are 
free people, not citizens of other countries, but not yet citizens, and then then full citizens. So a lot of people in 1866 said uh, Congress has the power to get rid of this status of denizen. Uh, and, you know, to be free, uh, you're just jumping straight up. Uh, you're not becoming a citizen of a different country. You're just jumping straight up to, to citizen. So Howard J. Graham uh, has a, uh, a bunch of really interesting essays, uh, our declaratory 14th Amendment uh, that uh, that makes relationship uh you know, just argues, you know, just points back to a lot of that history where they say, you know, the 14th Amendment, it's really just declaring what the 13th Amendment itself uh, was uh, was supposed to do. Um, you know, there's no question if you look at the uh, you know, free labor ideology, domination is a is a huge aspect to it. So Lincoln, when he's talking about uh, free labor, uh, it's very clear, you know, you start out working uh, for somebody else and then you save enough money, you can hire other people. And the goal is clearly uh, where everybody has freedom to work, you know, as much as they want or, or, or not. I'm not sure how I mean, it's, it's a somewhat somewhat fuzzy idea. Uh, it's clearly there in the in the Republican uh, just view of life and the, you know, reaping. Uh, uh, your the the fruits of your own labor, all just all over the place. I mean, very and kind of poetic uh, uh, from a lot of Lincoln uh, and and other folks like like Wilson. Uh, and of course, Lincoln doesn't. Uh, I mean, he's you know the ideas are are progressing and getting more uh, uh, more articulated as after uh, Lincoln's death, of course. Uh, so there is there is there, there is something there. Um, not sure that it's it's clear enough that there's a right. You know, not to be dominated when, when domination is, is really talking about, you know, like, uh, you know, freedom from want. I, I don't think, you know, Evan was, wasn't saying that, but FDR, when he, you know, gives these four freedoms and like, you know, people should be just free from scarcity. Uh, getting that is, is something a lot of people in the New Deal want. Uh, but I think that's squeezing a little too much out of the, out of the 13th Amendment. Um, I'll let you elaborate. A little yeah. Bit. So let me just clarify. You are not going to get the right to collectively bargain, to be free from mandatory arbitration, to not be governed by uncertain time schedules and are evaluated by algorithms out of there shall be no slavery or involuntary servitude. However, Section two of the 13th Amendment, just like Section five of the 14th Amendments, allows Congress to take the lead in defining and protecting civil rights. And I think there is a plausible case that rights that wouldn't themselves be guaranteed simply by the textual specification of neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist or no state shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Uh, the fact that you don't have in the text particular rights doesn't mean that Congress couldn't take a prophylactic approach, a way uh, to specify through statutes ancillary rights, rights that are adjacent in order to protect underlying rights that really are protected by the 13th or 14th Amendment. And that's the possibility that I want to leave open. Not that... Yes. Not that you can that make, right you me. can't make, you can't make the case that there was a widely accepted right to collectively bargain in 1863 or 1868. You can't. What you can do is take the view that just as um, if you look at the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and you look at a bunch of rights that don't seem to be identical to the condition of being um, an enslaved person, Congress may have space to go above and beyond the the text of the 13th or 14th Amendments by way of protecting underlying rights that are guaranteed by it. Yeah, so I, I basically agree uh, with, with Evan and Randy on the, the Section 5 power. The way I would put it would be a little different from, I think, how they would do it. The way I see it, um, the, you have to look at the enforcement power against the background of a clarity requirement for judicial review. So uh, at least a few years ago, Evan was a was a vehement opponent of, of that. Are you still? Are you still? I don't, don't know. But um, but one way to think of it is you, uh, the stuff that the, the courts can say is a violation of either the Thirteenth Amendment or Fourteenth Amendment, and that has to be clearly contrary to you know the underlying prohibition itself. Then you've got stuff that's clearly 
this doesn't have anything to do with it. Clearly beyond even Congress's power uh, uh, to, to clarify. But then within the between those those uh, uh, kind of uh, clearly yes, clearly no uh, zones, Congress has a power of clarification. Uh, so the power of clarification of the rights of free and equal citizenship is a very, very, very power. Uh, we agree that the 1883 uh, uh, court got that completely wrong. Uh, I think we agree that the court got it got it uh, got it wrong in 1997 in Bernie. Uh, yeah. I mean, almost all your major cases are, are wrong. Absolutely. So they get um, they get the slaughterhouse cases wrong in 1873. Uh, they're using the wrong clause in Munn in 1877. Uh, uh, they misinterpret the Equal Protection Clause in Yik Wo in 1886. They misinterpret Section 5 in the civil rights cases. Um, so we've been on this, you know, on this, you know, we've been using the wrong clauses uh, uh, ever since the 1870s. Uh, so everything the Supreme Court has said is you've got to take with the with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, just uh, just to use another analogy here that might be helpful. Nobody thinks that Congress was required to charter a bank of the United States by the Constitution. Yet in McCullough v. Maryland, the court upholds the creation of a natural uh, national bank on the ground that is reasonably adapted to the legitimate purpose of taxing and spending for the general welfare. By way of analogy, one could argue that the NLRA or the Civil Rights Act of 1866 isn't itself dictated by the text of the 13th Amendment, but it might be an appropriate means by which Congress could exercise its powers, which were defined in ways that deliberately tracked the language of McCullough in order to fulfill uh, what it understands to be its constitutional obligations. That's right. Appropriate is the term. Uh, so that you get, you know, it's moved. You know, it's, uh, section two, the Thirteenth Amendment, Section five. Uh, they put places in the sentences, but uh, uh, the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation, uh, enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. Obviously, etymologically, very, very close to proper, uh, which is what uh, gets so much attention in in uh, in McCulloch in eighteen nineteen. Well, let's you know. Let's answer a question. Uh, you're discussing the privileges or immunity, privileges and immunities clause. Whoa, whoa! <laughs> privileges or immunities clause. It is a Fourteenth Amendment. So the comity clause, comity with a T from Article Four, Section Two, clause. That's the privileges and immunities clause. Um, but uh, anyway, that's just a a. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, that's not a nice thing to for me to to complain about. Uh, you know, but we're discussing the privileges of marriage clause. But I thought the Supreme Court has largely ignored this clause. Um, well, not not quite so much. Uh, so uh, I think the last time before this last spring that the court had seriously discussed the privileges or immunities clause was Sainz v. Roe in 1999. Dot. Actually, in footnote 22, uh, I was very unhappy that footnote 22 was not quite a lot longer. Um, but for the first time, the court, uh, four times since 1999, said, hey, we want to take seriously a privileges or immunities clause argument under the 14th Amendment. Uh, what they said in, in footnote 22 was, well, it's be the same basic thing that we're doing under the tradition analysis, under the due process case law, because of Corfield versus Coriel, 1825, which Akilah Marr thinks is what the privileges or immunities clause about. Like, well, I mean, there's a bunch of steps here. I was really real. When I saw the draft, I saw that it was basically the same language as is in the draft opinion. When I saw that in the draft opinion, I thought, I mean, I think on Twitter, I said, hey, you know, this is clearly going to get a lot more elaborate. Because the dissent is going to make an argument, they like they're you know we're we're talking privileges or immunities. The dissent has got to make an argument uh, about equality and equal citizenship uh, based on the privileges or immunities clause. But then the dissent didn't elaborate it, and a leader's like, "Well, if you all aren't going to make a, a I don't know if this is how the conversation goes, but uh, he doesn't elaborate beyond 20, uh, footnote twenty two. Um, independent of that." The chain of citation actually goes back to the slaughterhouse dissent. Um, so the slaughterhouse dissent in 1873 gets recapitulated in 1884 uh, when the slaughtering monopoly comes back. Uh, Louisiana wants to cut off their, the slaughtering monopoly before the end of the 25 year terms. And Field and Bradley in 1884 say we were right in 1873. We're still right. 
and then writes these big, long explanations of the rights of the United States, that concurrence, Bradley's concurrence in 1884, is the main precedent that Al Geyer versus Louisiana relies on in 1897, which is the main precedent for Lochner in 1905, which is the main precedent for Meyer in 1923, which is the main precedent for Griswold in 1965, which is the main precedent for stuff like Roe and Obergefell, and you know that's what they're fussing over in Dobbs. So I, the way I sort of think of it, we're building, uh, uh, and we got privileges or immunity stuff uh, stuffed under the floorboards. Uh, so we've been building, uh, building stuff. Uh, you know, what would it uh, to have a privileges or immunities clause based 14th Amendment jurisprudence. Well, you know, it's like in in uh, Finding Nemo when they get, you know, where's the East Australian uh, current? You're riding it. Uh, we have our current 14th Amendment uh, jurisprudence uh, is based on these slaughterhouse dissents uh, from 1873. It's not very done very well. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's a terrible job. But, there, you know, it is, in fact, stuffed under the floorboards. So, uh, Evan, do you think, is that, is that a, story right? Uh, yeah, I think that story is generally right. The only thing that I would add here is that when we're talking about labor rights, if we're talking about the 13th Amendment, we're not talking about the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And it so happens that there is still a precedent on the books that is considered good law that takes a much broader view of the rights that Congress can permissibly define as or they permissively the permiss uh, is permitted to define the absence of constitutive of a badge or incident of slavery that gives Congress a tremendous amount of power that under City of Bernie and enforcement of the Fourteenth Amendment it doesn't have. And this is 1968 Jones v. Alfred H. Meyer Company, in which the court held that the Thirteenth Amendment's Section Two empowered Congress to define racial discrimination in the sale and rental and ho of housing as a badge or incident of slavery. That's very broad. There's some question about whether it survives Bernie, which Bernie seems to say that unless the court would feel justified as recognizing something as a right protected by the Reconstruction Amendments, Congress has a very limited amount of space to go above that floor. But they are different amendments. And so in theory, the arguments for labor rights as defined by Congress in ways that are designed to prevent domination um, are more promising under the 13th Amendment than under the 14th Amendment. Quickly, yeah. everything is more promising under the Commerce Clause um, as a matter of current doctrine, but not as a matter of original meaning. I think that Chris and I basically share the view that the Commerce Clause is doing a lot of work that enforcements of the Reconstruction Amendments ought to be doing, um, but hasn't been allowed to do because the Supreme Court has construed the Commerce Clause so broadly. So does labor antitrust slot better under Amendment 13 than under the Commerce Clause? I think absolutely, yes, it does. And certainly progressive justices like uh, Brandeis understood uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act as being designed in parts um, to protect people against domination. But as the court's doctrine ended up working out, it's now all slotted under the Commerce Clause. Also, in response to Jack's question about the Taft-Hartley amendments, so uh, if there's an originalist case for the NRA because it's uh, tailored to the end of preventing domination, uh, is it possible that the Taft-Hartley Act, which amended the NLRA in ways that labor advocates have always hated, including by prohibiting secondary boycotts, solidarity strikes, um, violates the 13th Amendment? I would say yes, but very in a very precise way. A Congress that takes the view that the Taft-Hartley amendments expose workers to a risk of domination that approximates a badge of, or incidents of slavery and involuntary servitude could permissibly act on that uh, could personally act on that conviction, even though the court wouldn't be justified in, say, striking down provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act because it promotes domination. Yeah, when you're talking about, you know, congressional action unconstitutional, uh, you really, I mean, that's a, that's a real, real uphill, uphill climb. Uh, yeah, the First Amendment arguments, um, 
I mean, I would, you know, you can put a lot of First Amendment arguments you can put in terms of equal citizenship. It's the right of people of all political creeds to have political and religious creeds uh, to have the same civil rights. Uh, so, um you know, a lot of the incorporation uh, uh, discussion, you know, I think is somewhat obviated once you once you see that a lot of a lot of First Amendment stuff is really an anti-discrimination argument. Uh, you know, you kind of repackage. I mean, it's kind of anti-discrimination stuff, you know, put into the First Amendment, and then question about incorporation, you know, coming back down. But you can just directly say, hey, you've got an equal citizenship. Uh, right to uh, be treated as the same, uh, have the same civil rights as all similarly situated uh, fellow citizens. Just putting, um, my legal, putting my legal realist hat on for a moment, there is no way that this court is going to hold that the Taft-Hartley amendments violate the First Amendment. It is considerably more plausible that two houses of Congress that take the view that the Taft-Hartley amendments promote domination could enact a statute, something like the PRO Act, that is designed to get rid of those amendments. And the PRO Act would eliminate the ban on secondary boycotts. Constitutional arguments are not just for the courts. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, in terms of what the odds would be that the current court would strike down the Taft-Hartley Act, I would say uh, you've got a much, much better chance of uh, convincing people at a constitutional convention uh, to have that amendment uh, than that would happen uh, with the with the court. Um, so people want to ha want us to have a fight about due process because <laughs> we do, we do disagree kind of sharply about about due process of the law of the law you got you know it's got to be yeah. um, so we. Uh, that being said, when it comes to the idea that the 14th Amendment prohibits arbitrary legislation somehow defined, we largely are in the same place. We would just get to that conclusion in different ways. Yeah, so you, you've got you've got belts and suspenders, and then more suspenders with the you know the Fourteenth Amendment, the Thirteenth Amendment, and and due process of law. I'm like, my belt is pretty good. Like the privilege, I, I don't know the belt and suspenders. Like I, I you know I, you know in terms of the Fourteenth and Thirteenth Amendment, I'm like, well, this belt is really pretty dang good. The suspenders, ah, I don't know, uh, they might be just as good. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, don't take off your belt. Uh, uh, I mean, don't repeal the privileges or immunities clause because you think, oh, it's all fine. And just, you know, you know, Graham said it was declaratory. It's all 13th Amendment. No, I mean, it does a, a huge amount of very important work. Um, but, uh, you know, why the court is using the wrong clause. Why? So, you know, why you think the court is using the wrong clause. You can interpret that as um, why do we think it is the wrong clause and why do, why do we think the court is doing it? <laughs> Um, in 2010 in McDonald, they basically were afraid, uh, of Pandora's box. They're like, ah, we don't know what the original meaning of the privileges and meanings clause is just sort of let it, let it be. Um, I think there's a lot more consensus today than there even was 12 years ago. Um, I think, you know, I think that's part of why footnote 22 and Dobbs reads the way it does. They're feeling like, well, how do we... Kind of, you know, be a little tentative, you know, offer some, you know, it's, well, it's tradition somehow. Uh, it's Corfield-ish stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, they could, they could switch clauses. Uh, you don't think it's, they're going to switch clauses? It would not be all that difficult. You could keep the same test that they're using, deeply rooted in history and tradition from substantive due process, move it over to privileges or immunities. And Chris and I, at least for two cons, uh, originalist scholars, would be generally okay with that. Um, the idea that this is just an insurmountable difficulty because who knows what could happen. You've got supposedly originalist justices acquiescing in what they think is a totally non-originalist understanding of the due process clause because they're scared that if they focus on the right clause, that will open Pandora's box. I mean, it doesn't really pass the laugh test. And Justice Scalia's ridicule of um, Alan Gura arguing the case for McDonald, um, suggesting that he was bucking for a professorship because he dared to raise an important question about original meaning that was thoroughly briefed and argued, uh, was not one of his finer moments. Yeah. And um, yeah, so we yeah, we disagree, uh, Evan and I, about. Uh, I guess a couple of things. So, you know, deeply rooted in, in tradition, American uh, uh, history and tradition. So one 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 area we disagree is about exactly what's going on with 1868. So do do the 
the rights prevalent in 1868 get some sort of preferred position. Uh, mm-hmm. And Dobbs is very clear. Alito is like the most important fact about history was how many states prohibited it in 1868. I kind of don't think, I mean, I think it's a relevant fact insofar as it tells you a little bit about the meaning. It is part of American uh, traditional rights. I don't think the 1868 stuff is, is uh, really either a floor or a ceiling. Uh, but Justice Alito sort of views it. He says some things that suggest that it might be a ceiling. Evan is very clear it's not a ceiling, but he wants to be it to be a floor. I would say it's kind of neither a floor nor a ceiling. Uh, we also just about just how deeply rooted uh, it has to be. Um, so Evan and Randy, they say, well, if it's lasted for 30 years, then it's pretty deeply rooted. I would say I'm not sure how deeply rooted it has to be uh, uh, if it. Uh, if it's uh, if it emerges overnight, uh, every single state, you know, you know, something happens. OK, so a big, huge event in the world happens and every single state gives somebody some uh, some privilege, uh, except for one state on really poor grounds. They can't explain why they're just like, we just hate these people or something, you know, whatever. You have some sort of explanation that just doesn't doesn't make sense. Seems like uh, even if the tradition is only uh, a week old, if every every state but one is is doing it, that would be enough of a consensus for me. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, you know those are those are really you know you know fairly de- you know fairly small details that aren't gonna aren't gonna matter too much. Um, any other questions here? Uh, one for Chris. Okay. Um, do I have occupational licensing in mind? Thing that uh, uh, could be uh, that, that seems to say, seems to me like rent-seeking malarkey. Uh, that might have been the term I used. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean occupational licensing. I mean, uh, yeah, I I have pretty pretty strong intuitions that those those same uh, pretty. Uh, you know, it seemed like they couldn't be justified. If you you wouldn't have to ask very much more than Williamson. I mean, William Williamson is it conceivably rational, I guess, but he's really not much more than that. Um, uh, so, if any kind of standard uh, pushing back a lot against a lot of these occupational licensing, um, the ex-con ones are especially like these are just absurd policy. Telling people after they've been out of prison, oh, you're the people we don't want to compete against. Uh, so you're 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 excluded from all these all these professions that you know they have willing people willing to buy their services. Uh, you know this is like absolutely critical to uh, you know treating people humanely after they come out of prison is allowing them to have a have a job. I just think it's it's uh, you know you know so, stuff like that. I think it's just a disaster on almost every conceivable level. Um, so. Um, it was I thinking about occupational licensing or some some core uh, NLRA FLSA labor? Um, yeah, the core stuff. There's an argument. <laughs> there's an argument that it doesn't really make any sense. Um, it's uh, yeah. There's rent seeking in a lot of places. Uh, how obvious it could be? Uh, how obviously you could show it to be just rent seeking and not in the interest of all citizens? Uh, that's you know closer to the line. Right. So this is this is where things get super dicey because there is an emergence over the course of the last. Generally, or of work of the uh, the public more generally, and I think that's. This is the the concern about unions seeking privileges for themselves at the expense of others. This really is kind of a core democratic problem that you're going to encounter in any governance arrangements in which um, you have concerns about majority rule being used to extract benefits for the majority rather than serving any broader public purpose. The question from the perspective of policy and also from the question of domination is, are unions a governance arrangement that can counterbalance the risk of domination without becoming themselves instruments of domination? And it's very clear that at least 
as um, you know, Republicans and uh, advocates of labor unions in the late 19th century understood it, they were effective countervailing forces. And I am of the larger belief that they can still be so, that workplace democracy is important, even if it can misfire and just as any form of democracy can. Um, but you do need to be careful when you're thinking about the possibility of um, arbitrary actions that constrain the rights of others uh, to not just focus on particular bad guys like legislatures or particular pressure groups that you're suspicious of, but take a more general approach. Yeah, there's, there's no question. Yeah, I did want to underline my agreement with Evan about uh, the kind of journalistic uh, aspect of things. You know, just because you make a contract doesn't mean uh, you're, you know, uh, you're acting as a free and equal citizen uh, just because you, you can you can point to something on the dotted, on dotted line. There you know, there's a lot of paternalism, both in terms of uh, the legislature being allowed to be paternalistic. I mean, you know, subject to regulation and the general good of the of the citizenry. That's, you know, no question, a very, very strong uh, element of the tradition. But then also saying, look, you know, you may you sold yourself into quasi slavery. You're not allowed to do that. Um, you at point does have that right. And you at point two uh, has the right as a free and equal citizen that that you not uh, be subject to that kind of contract. Um yeah, the history of you know labor unions is an anti uh, uh, domi- you know, kind of a, a device for preventing domination. I, I probably a good bit more skeptical than Evan is, and you know, historically, the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, you find on you know mm-hmm. you know maybe the progenitors of the the arguments. I mean, I don't think Adair and Coppage are quite as you know. Uh, mm-hmm. New on the scene in in the early uh, early twentieth century, as Evan uh, I think probably thinks. Uh, but yeah, there's there's development, there's development. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean even today, I mean you think of movies like On the Waterfront, uh, the bad guy uh, that uh, Marlon Brando is is fighting back against uh, is the union, and it's the and it's you know the standard actually you know it's the guys you know a couple of steps up the up uh, uh, the bottom of the ladder is like what you know I want to be able to get into this uh, 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 business even though I'm on the the low end like the very uh, bottom uh, bottom ladder rung and uh, you know all the fat cats uh, you know wearing wearing you know the Wall Street fat cats say oh, oh we love poor people we want to be able to hire them for you know tiny wages uh, in in more da- you know slightly more dangerous conditions the worry is that, that that's not a a good way to p- uh, keep people uh, from being uh, uh, you know able to, you know to run their own uh, uh, lives but you know there's an argument that the the unions are you know at least aspects of the of having a, a you know bad guy status themselves. I would just say that we live in a world of imperfect alternatives, number one. Number two, on the waterfront was a very thinly veiled effort on the part of the director to justify uh, appearing before QAC, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, and denouncing um, socialists. So the, the message of that movie is one that doesn't it probably shouldn't be taken as at face value portrayal of a general union tenor of the time. It's it's not a documentary. I certainly yes. agree. But it's sort of, I mean, I don't know, ideologically, it sort of scratches me a little bit where I itch. Uh, and, you know, just in terms of it's like... A great movie. Anti-com- Everybody should see the movie. Brando is terrific. Yeah, yeah, I could have been a contender. In terms of a picture of uh, the anti-communist uh, way of thinking in the 50s, I think, you know, it, it, it's a pretty good picture of that ideologically. Yes, it uh, absolutely is. So. It's an important cultural document and a great movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, does it matter if we switch clauses? Um, non-citizens' rights are the big ones that, you know, you worry about. Um, the way so I've actually got a paper uh, which uh, still needs a law review home, by the way, uh, about non-citizens rights under the commerce power. So uh, about how I think the commerce power has been interpreted to be way too big. But the tribal and foreign commerce powers, I actually have a revisionist argument that that is actually uh, gives Congress the power to give rights to non-citizens, either tribal members or citizens of other countries. Um, 
that allows them to give, you know, require stakes to be uh, free and equal, uh, treat them as free and equal kind of members of the of the community. And Congress has, in fact, done that in the 1870 expansion of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and 1986. They prohibit discrimination against non-citizens in employment. Uh, I think those are uh, uh, quite solid uh, constitutionally as exercises of the foreign commerce power. And um, yeah, there's we can talk about about tribal stuff, uh, uh, but we probably shouldn't. So, um, so I wouldn't. Yes, yeah, so I wouldn't say it would make a huge difference. It would give. Uh, uh, it would put things into Congress's. Uh, uh, Congress would be the one to make those decisions, and but they have already. So you know, given the statutes they've already passed, I don't think it would would have to make a difference. Just make clear, you know, Congress is the is the one running the. Forced labor implications of. Yeah. Forced labor is in uh, quotes. Many things have forced labor implications. Yeah, is this the, the quotes suggest that he's uh, 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 maybe hearkening back to uh, Andy Koppelman's Thirteenth Amendment defense of abortion. Um, so, are there Thirteenth Amendment implications for abortion? Um, you know, they get you in the game. Okay, I think the privileges or means law is a lot easier way to get in the game, um, but. Uh, what do you think of, do you know Andy's 13th yeah, Amendment Yeah, I, I do. And what I'm trying to pin down about his position is whether he thinks that, yes, the Supreme Court could tomorrow recognize that Roe v. Wade is actually correctly decided on 13th Amendment grounds on the one hand, or Congress could take that view that forced pregnancy is one of the badges and incidents of uh, slavery, given that enslaved people were forced to reproduce and give birth in order to prop up that economic institution. And a future Congress could rely upon that history and codify Roe or something. I think the latter argument is much more plausible than the former. I don't think that either the 13th or the 14th Amendment gets you to the court's decision in Roe. So to that extent, I don't think that it's convincing. I am yeah, it, on the on the badges and incidents question, because I do think that forced uh, reproduction was an important aspect of what it meant to be enslaved and that under the 13th Amendments, uh, Congress has some space to do that which the court could not do on its own initiative. Yeah, it, I mean, it, I mean, I've you know talked to them, and you know, it gets you in the game, okay, of saying, okay, there's a question here. It doesn't really answer uh, the key question of abortion, which is, um, what about the rights of the fetus, and why don't they override uh, whatever uh, bodily integrity rights uh, uh, the uh, the mother has? So stuff like, uh, I mean, I think you have to adopt, or at least be you know, give Congress the ability to adopt either Michael Tooley's arguments or Marianne Warren's arguments against fetal personhood, saying that, you know, it's OK uh, for Congress to come in here because there's nothing at stake in, in the uh, uh, fetal rights or Judith Thompson's arguments about bodily override. I think you have to engage the substance of those. And that's either if you're if you're passing a law or just defending. I mean, I think the uh, the stuff about Godoldig uh, that the court gives in, in Dobbs. <laughs> really need some more really bad. development I think there. Really bad. Uh, yeah but the uh, but the but the dissent doesn't doesn't push on it uh I, so i uh yeah i'm unhappy with the majority for not really you know getting into the guts of 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 the substantive uh, uh issues at, at at stake in in abortion prohibition but i'm also upset with the dissent for not to, to dig into it so uh but the 13th amendment is very very similar in that respect it gets you in the game but it doesn't finish the finish the job just really quickly i i slightly disagree because i think that the bounds of the views of personhood that it would be permissible for Congress to adopt need to be historically situated rather than contingent upon the best opinion of contemporary philosophers, whether they be Michael Tooley or Judith Jarvis Thompson. It may be very clear, circa 1868, that there was a prevalent conception of personhood, or at least the concept had boundaries such that there are certain arguments that contemporary philosophers might make that are clearly out of bounds, like Peter Singer's view that, um, well, 
you can Google Peter Singer and infanticide and come to conclusions about his views. Um, so there may be something that history can do to speak to the bounds of the substantial discussion that we need to have about personhood rights, even acknowledging that we need to have those substantial discussions. Yeah, yeah, the, the history matters a lot. Uh, I mean, one thing with the history is it's like our our knowledge of biology is developing a lot. Once you get microscopes, you can actually observe. I think we observe mammalian fertilization for the first time in like 1871 or something. I mean, it's it's uh, you gotta. You got to have uh, room for for developments of of science, but sure. but now we've been talking about abortion for ten minutes, and uh, like what are we what are we doing? Uh, we're supposed to be talking about labor. Back ten minutes of discussion and two minutes of actual time. Yeah, our host is host is uh, is coming back to to cut us off. Yes, no, it seems like a good time to uh, to wrap this up. Um, and so, yeah, on behalf of the Federal Society, I want to thank Chris and Evan for their valuable time and expertise today, and also to our audience for. Uh, engaging with us. Uh, as always, we welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. Um, and as always, keep an eye on our website for announcements about upcoming webinars. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.